stop the presses. Bill could be entitled Journalism 101. Florida's bill targeting anonymous sources and defamation heads to the House floor. This bill is unconstitutional. It goes against free speech. The facts and the friction with the rep seeing it through. Stopping the scroll. Keeps him on the platform for hours and hours and hours. The bill taking kids' accounts off social media hits the governor's desk. We have the ability to make sure that we do protect kids. Will he sign or won't he? We'll be, we'll be wrestling with that. There are 33 of 1,067 Manatee-based students that do not have an MMR vaccine. Measles on the move, a dangerous disease back from oblivion and in South Florida. The state has chosen not to do all the things it could do to help contain it. The latest and your chance to ask your own questions. Get ready to get online. The big news of the week, all live this week in South Florida. Good morning, welcome. I'm Glenna Milberg, a lot to get to today. The numbers, they are rising this weekend. More cases added to the outbreak of measles, school-related, at least one travel-related, and Florida health officials are raising the alarm. Later in this program, we will have the latest on the outbreak and the response, and also what you can do to keep yourself and your family healthy. And we invite you to send in any question you may have for real-time answers right here on the air. Take note of this address. It's TWISF at WPLG.com. That's the email. Or you can also use Twitter X at WPLG Local 10. First, though, two of the most controversial bills of the state lawmaking session are in play. And we begin with the one that gives Governor DeSantis a deadline. Both the Florida House and Senate passed that bill that takes kids under 16 off social media platforms. And he has until March 1st, the end of this week, to sign it. That bill is meant to address purposefully addictive components of social media and mental health. Some question whether that state government's role to manage or does that role go to parents? The governor is one of those doing the questioning. I think that there are harms associated with that. I do think parents could supervise in ways where it's used in ways that could be beneficial. So those are things I think I think you got to got to strike that proper balance uh, when you're looking at these things uh, between uh, policy that is helping parents get to where they want to go versus policy that that may be uh, you know just over outright overruling parents and so we'll be we'll be wrestling with that so will he or won't he sign it in the house where it was the speaker's priority bill it passed with pretty big bipartisan support only seven representatives voted against it state rep ashley gant was one of them Democrat repping a long quarter of mid-Miami-Dade right here at the table with us to get into it. So nice to have you here. Thank you, Glenna. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell me, why did you vote against this? A lot of your colleagues were totally on board with this bill. Why not? So I want to start with the history of the bill. So last session, Rep. Michelle Rayner from Pinellas County actually filed a bill. It got to the House floor to hold social media um, companies accountable. And I voted up on that bill because I do think that there needs to be something done. However, when we saw the second iteration of her bill, it was some portions of her bill, and then it was a whole lot of other stuff. And the other stuff is basically what I could not get on board with. So that other stuff, just to be specific, is what? <laughs> the parental consent. So okay. over and over and over in the legislature, we continue to hear 
parental rights, parental rights. We are we have books being banned. The dictionary in Escambia County has been banned for parental rights and making sure parents have the well, ultimate just, say. Well, factually not banned, just taken, challenged, Take and going through the process. Okay. Just, just for the record. So it's, it's going through that yes. process, mm -hmm. right? For parental choice, yes. to make sure that parents have the ultimate say. And so when we come to this bill and social media, when we have an, an, the ability to hold these companies accountable with Rough Rainers bill, we added a lot more. And that a lot more for me was the the complete ban of parents being able to actually make that choice. Well, that that's an interesting assessment because this this bill really puts the onus on the platforms. And it doesn't say uh, under 16 can't be on social media. It says under 16 year olds may not go into the contract of getting an account. Mm -hmm. So technically speaking, in a parent's account, if a parent allows, a 15, 14, 13 year old could be on those platforms. Correct, so the parent will have to make the actual account mm -hmm. and their child will have access to it. But as far as the child having their own account, so I brought up the economic part of it. Well, what if a child makes money off of their platform? And we know that we see that there are a lot of children influencers who you know, support their family. We actually did stories involving them, yes, 100%. Correct. And so parents do not have an opt-in or even an opt-out option. And I brought that up to uh, one of the bill sponsors, Rep Soroy, about, well, what if we allow parents to still have an, an opt-in? Uh, option and the response was no it's just a blanket no and so what my fear is we've seen the legislature the Republican ran legislature say oh no we're gonna we're not gonna go any further we're not gonna go any further and we saw that with the abortion abortion ban the 15 week and then the six week and then this very session we had a bill filed it was only in the house but it was a complete ban and well, so the the difference with the abortion bill is no no one ever said we're not going to go further. Well, that was conversation with the 15 week abortion ban based on conversations I've had, uh -huh. and then the six week ban came that we were not privy to in the correct. Public. Yes. <laughs> okay. And so um, now we are saying parents have the absolute inability to make that decision as far as social media is concerned with their children. Let, let me ask you about the bill. This, you know, it's, it's not a long bill to read. It's an easy read. And it really goes to the, pla it's almost like, uh, you know, I don't want to characterize it as an attack, for, but it is totally telling the platforms, here's what you can do, here's what you cannot do. And it real the heart of it is the addictive components Correct. of the algorithm that keeps kids and, and maybe adults scrolling. And that seems to be the heart of the bill. How do you get the platforms to take responsibility for not targeting people with this psychological mm -hmm. component. So uh, because Rep Brainer's bill was the initial bill, we've had extensive conversations about this and I do agree with her. She said that the bill speaks to the addictive functions of the bill, of the, of the platforms. And there are some platforms based on the revised or amended version that we received back from the Senate when we ultimately voted on it in the House. It is about the addictive, the uh, consistent scrolling and those type of um, algorithm yeah. features, which I completely understand. But when we are still talking about well, how are we in the state of Florida really empowering parents to have these conversations? And I brought this up in one committee, uh, uh, Rep McFarland, she was like, well, no, I actually brought this up on the floor the first time we saw the bill. And she was like, well, why are we making parents do even more? And I went back to my high school teaching days where I'm like, well, we would actively have 
conversations with parents so that they know how to develop that new level of conversing with their teen. Like, hey, what's going on? What is this? You know, actually facilitating more conversations and more probably deeper and intimate conversations mm -hmm. with parents and their children. And so I was like, this is an opportunity because I filed an amendment that actually took the language from Arkansas because this bill is like the bill in Arkansas and it out allows for a parent opt-in and so that was my my response to her well parents can have better conversations and deeper conversations and still having the ability to make the ultimate decision so you're you're a lawyer by trade it do you see anything about this that's challengeable in court I, I think there are I think the uh, parental consent is most likely going to be challenged and, and what grounds would that be well when when you're in law school and you start your family law courses one of the one of the the main points that my professor made over and over in case law and everything was parent to child relationship is one of the most intimate relationships and the government really has to have um, a compelling interest to mm -hmm. intervene into that relationship and so that's what I kept going back to I don't practice family law by no means um, so I, I rest on my knowledge from law school and having different conversations with colleagues about it and we all feel you know if this gets challenged it could be based on the First Amendment or even censoring parents um, and their ability to raise their child how they want. So such an interesting dynamic because there's so many people in the legislature that uh, of your party and that you're close to that, that really are on board with this for mental health reasons so we will see. Yes. Ashley Gant, state rep, Democrat from a big part of yes. Miami-Dade. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you we got a, co a couple of weeks left to talk about all kinds of bills, so stay in touch. I definitely will. Thank <laughs> right. you. Thank you. All right. Stop the presses. Florida's defamation bill targeting anonymous sources heads to the House floor, and its sponsor is here live next. For a House vote, a bill to make news media more accountable for their reporting. And who wouldn't want that? Well, it's complicated because a free press with constitutional protections is a key part of keeping government honest by keeping you in the know. But then what about media bias, intentional or not, or carelessness or incompetence? The bill mostly takes aim at anonymous sourcing. And one of the most interesting parts of the debate is the opposition coming from both Democrats and Republicans for different reasons. The person taking most of those slings and arrows as the bill goes through the debate is the sponsor, State Representative Alex Andrade, Republican from Pensacola, right there with us live this morning. Representative Andrade, great to have you on. Hey, good morning, Glenna. Thanks for having me. Of course. So um, you have, uh, I love this quote that you gave in one of the committee meetings. Hey, this is Journalism 101. Explain that. Well, Glenna, I'm going to assume right now that you as a professional journalist uh, hold off on maybe publishing a statement of fact. If it if you only have one source providing you that fact before you report it, whether or not it's anonymous, uh, you do your best to fact check and double check or get a second source before publishing a statement, a fact that you know might run the risk of harming someone's reputation. Um, the bill doesn't change the standard for what's called actual malice, which is what New York Times versus Sullivan uh, created um, for public figures. Um, if you're a private figure, if you're a private individual and you've been defamed, uh, you go to court seeking justice for the defamation you suffered, the harm to your reputation you suffered. You only have to prove someone was negligent when they talked about you and defamed you. For public figures, people who've been on a ballot, 
people who are in government, people who are famous for whatever reason, a lot of times they have to prove this actual malice standard, which is much higher than negligence. Uh, it's with knowledge that something was false or with reckless disregard for whether or not something was false. Um, the bill just says if, if you used an anonymous source, a single anonymous source and nothing else, there should be a presumption of actual malice if what you said about that person turned out to be false. So so let's, um, when you quote New York Times versus Sullivan, actually I think the 60th anniversary of that unanimous vote is coming up in the next couple of weeks. And that kind of has been, well it has been, the standard for all of this for the last 60 years. And, and what that says is that the First Amendment protects all statements, to your point, about public officials, except when made with actual malice. And, and that's a has been a protection for mistakes or um, not an intentional mistake or carelessness to sort of keep the press as free as possible. And, and defamation, of course, has to have an actual um, a damage, a hurt reputation to go to court. But so taking an anonymous source, and, and yes, to answer your question, yes, I would never personally do anything unless I was ironclad sure. Um, but, but when you take an anonymous source, Let's say that anonymous source works in government or works in a company at great risk to his or her own safety is a whistleblower. Whistleblowers have protections. So why would this be any different? Well, this wouldn't be any different, Glenna. And I think that's the big distinction. I think a lot of people, um, many people don't even know that defamation lawsuits are brought all the time right now. Um, this bill would not change a single case that has been brought forward to court in the past 60 years since New York Times versus Sullivan. The big concern is that people see a legislator codifying what every single verdict has been rendered on the topic has said in this context for the past 60 years, and they're just concerned that a legislator is doing it. I, I, I would disagree that this bill talks mostly about anonymous sources. There's, I think, seven sections. Only one section talks about actual malice and anonymous sources. But every journalist I've ever talked to says, no, they would never publish a statement of fact based on a single anonymous source um, because they consider journalistic malpractice. All the bill says is, if you do end up doing that based on a single anonymous source, and it turns out to be false, you have to show your math. You have to show everything you did to try and fact check or confirm that statement that turned out to be false before you published it. You don't have to disclose your source, but you better show how you tried to fact check that source before publishing a statement that turned out to be false. I think you could be able to show any documentation you looked at to try and confirm that source's statement. You can look at other individuals who, who you might have contacted to try and confirm that statement. You can talk about your state of mind and impressions in discussing with that anonymous source before publishing, what you can't do is act as if that's a get out of jail free card and operate accordingly. And all of that would be done when this rises to litigation and this would be in the court. Yeah, and this doesn't change what can and can't be sued over. This wouldn't change the number or types of defamation lawsuits that can be brought that are brought right now. This is what I consider kind of like a glorified jury instruction. There should be a rebuttable presumption at the end of a jury trial where jurors can presume that if there's no, there was no due diligence done by that reporter or that journalist before they published this statement that was false, if it was based on a single anonymous source, jurors should be able to be told, yeah, this is an example of reckless disregard for whether or not that statement was true or not. And I think I have not found a single journalist who's disagreed with me on that point. So do you think just the mere specter of uh, a bit easier litigation path would be a chilling effect on someone, a, a journalist, 
who really does have facts from or or this journalist's management that chilling effect to publish because of the specter of possibility of lawsuits is that a, a chilling effect on the press if you're a journalist that is not aware that defamation lawsuits happen right now i don't know what to tell you these defamation lawsuits occur right now. Um, the main thrust of the bill, this, aside from that one section on anonymous sources, the main point of the bill, uh, from my perspective, is making sure we clarify certain things about newspapers that publish articles online, needing to retract or correct uh, articles if they've been published online, and also this concept of a veracity hearing. The purpose of the bill for me, I'm just passionate about dispute resolution. If I can pass this, this section in the bill called a veracity hearing, um, these defamation lawsuits could be resolved much more quickly and efficiently, save both parties a lot of money. It would protect defendants who are being sued abusively, and would also allow plaintiffs who normally right now have to wait three years for a jury verdict to come out to clear their name. It would allow them to clear their name in the context of a lawsuit that they feel forced to bring while they wait for that jury verdict on the back end. Um, you know, there's a circumstance where, I mean, Elon Musk got sued for a tweet calling someone a, a pedo guy, a pedophile a few years back. He had to wait three years to finally win that lawsuit because that's just name calling, which isn't defamation. Um, if this bill were to pass, he would have at least gotten, he would have been able to get out of that lawsuit within months instead of years. And that's the, that's the whole purpose for this bill. Um, Let me ask me, you, a, 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 in the short time we have together, a uh, quick question about the veracity hearing. Would the veracity hearing put the judge in charge of fact-finding instead of the jury in charge of fact-finding? No, it's a motion for summary judgment standard, um, except it, the veracity hearing wouldn't be adjudicating liability as well. A summary judgment standard is if there's no actual dispute over the facts, the court can issue an order. What this means is if I'm the plaintiff and I had to file a lawsuit to clear my name, I can ask the judge to essentially have a summary judgment hearing um, and rule that the statement of fact that I'm suing over was a statement that was false. It would allow me to clear my name without going to the liability or damages or anything else. But it all depends on whether or not there's an actual dispute of fact. That's why judges can grant summary judgment motions for plaintiffs right now for liability. This doesn't reach nearly as far and uh, is absolutely constitutional from that perspective. Do you think is um, that the Senate still has a way to go? It doesn't seem to be moving all that quickly, and I'm, I'm not quite sure I'd even what, what to compare that to, but it just it seems like the House is taking it up a lot faster than the Senate. Do you do you have any concerns about the Senate side? No, I'm not concerned. It's moved through half of its committees. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not concerned. The bill sponsor is very passionate about it as well on the Senate side. So there's still two weeks in session, and that's a lifetime <laughs> if you've been in the process. The, the, the two weeks left in session. Alex Andrade, rep from Pensacola, Republican, and sponsor of the defamation bill. It is great to have you on the program. I appreciate it. Thank you. And coming up, answers to your questions about measles and a South Florida outbreak. Here are the addresses again to use right now. TWISF, which is this week in South Florida, at WPLG.com. And you can also reach out on Twitter, X, at WPLG Local 10. And after the break, South Carolina Republicans hand Donald Trump another primary win this weekend. Florida votes next month. A look at who will be going to the polls next.
South Carolina Republicans gave Donald Trump another primary win in Nikki Haley's home state, South Carolina, this weekend. Florida voters have another few weeks to our presidential primary. That's March 19th. And if you are not registered to vote in that, too late. The deadline came and went this week. The supervisor of elections in Broward County is Joe Scott right here to crunch some of those numbers, which includes some interesting party switches. Welcome, Joe. Welcome to the table. Good morning, Glenda. Thanks for having <laughs> Good me. Good morning. Um, so the, the party switch, well, first of all, Broward County is the most Democratic county in the state. Right. And um, 800 or so people who were Democrats switched to become Republican Party members in Broward County. Yeah, so that number actually went up a little bit since that story came out. Oh, you like, bring the latest yeah. numbers. So it bring ended up being, so we ended up having about 2,500 people switch to Republican since January 1st, between January 1st and the deadline that just passed on Tuesday. All right, so I know the Republican Party of Florida have, <laughs> has made a giant effort over the past two years to bulk up the numbers. Statewide, I think, and I don't have the latest numbers in front of me, but seven to 800,000 more Republicans statewide um, than Democrats. But in the most Democratic county of the state, why would that happen? What are those former Democrats thinking? Yeah, no, so it's interesting because, so one thing about Florida is because we are a closed primary state, you do have to be registered. In other places, what we did see through this primary season is that, <clears throat> excuse me, there were folks who, you know, would come out who were registered as independent, registered as no party affiliation, as we call it here in Florida, and they would go be able to vote. So in other states, they have the rules allow people from different parties to still vote. Uh, Iowa and New Hampshire right. are two of those, and we were there, you know, and that was happening a lot. Yes. Yeah. So here in Florida, you actually have to make that switch before the deadline, which is 29 days before the election. So I've, I would not, I would encourage people not to read too much into this as if there's some kind of shift happening Conspiracy within Broward County, right? Going. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, um, you know, 2,500 people moving to Republican represents about 1% of the registered Republicans in Broward County. But then, it, I, I am surprised by that. Yeah. Should I be? <laughs> is that surprising to you? Uh, it is, a little bit. Um, that it ended up being so many people right there at the end. And honestly, 2,500, even though it's only 1% of the total Republicans, you know, if you look at even with the Iowa caucuses, you only saw about 15% turnout, right? Mm -hmm. So if we end up with 15% turnout, then that could end up being somewhere in the neighborhood of 7% of the voters. Assuming these people who bother to change their party here at the last second are probably more likely than most to actually vote. Uh, and we don't really, we can't ascribe what they're thinking. We don't know why they're voting, who they're voting for, or why they vote the way they do. Sure. But what might be interesting to see is if there is a change back afterwards. That'll be the test. That will be the tale. real test, yeah. <laughs> so this is, you know, maybe a conspiracy going on here in, in Broward County. So let, let, me, let me talk about the primary coming up on March 19th. Sure. There is no Democratic primary for Florida. Correct. Because the Democrats have already chosen Joe Biden as their Florida winner. Right, so the way that their process works because they only had one candidate qualify, there's no primary. So it'll, everyone going to the polls will be Republican voters and Republicans will see a ballot with a lot of names on it, not just Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. True. Why aren't why are those ballots going to have people like Vivek Ramaswamy and and there's like seven other names, six other names? Right. So there was actually a deadline that passed in November. So, you know, and I feel like we're probably going to get a lot of people asking this question. And the reason is is that they'll you hear it on the news. So the person will go out and make an announcement. I'm withdrawing from the race. Right. That's not an official action. They need to actually file paperwork to have their name removed from the from the 
from the ballot. And a lot of these people didn't do that in time. They didn't meet the deadline. So, so if they what didn't, happens if a Florida Republican goes in and votes for one of those people who has suspended yeah. his or her campaign? His campaign. There are no hers sure. that have suspended. <laughs> you know, so we, we count the votes and we report the results. So ultimately, if you want to vote for one of those people who already withdrew and their name is on the ballot, you can vote for that person and it'll show in the results how many people voted for each of those folks. Um, I wouldn't, I, for most people, I wouldn't read too much into it because somebody who has announced that they are not part of the uh, race anymore is probably not, a lot of people aren't going to vote for them. A lot of the um, voters who come out for these primaries, they do tend to be the more sophisticated voters. So they already are kind of paying attention. It's not as if they're looking at these names for the first time when they see the ballot, right? right. They already know who they're showing up to support, and then a lot of the support will go to those candidates that are still contesting the election. Yeah. Let's, for a minute, let's talk about the people who may not be that engaged, but who want to be engaged and who want to, to vote. Um, having your registration done, it, it's too late for the presidential primary. You have to be registered. But to people who want to vote by mail, for instance, is there still time to get your vote by mail ballot to ask for one for, the, for the primary? Absolutely. And, um, you know, and it's something that everybody can do. It takes about two minutes on our website, BrowardVotes.gov. And this is for any county, too, Miami-Dade right, or sure. Monroe as well. So, yeah. yeah, so obviously my website would just be for Broward County. But <laughs> yeah. your, Miami and, uh, and Monroe County also have their own. Um, but yes, you can go on, you can make a request, request your vote by mail ballot. You can actually request for all the elections happening this year. You know, one thing that's important for folks to know, especially those 2,500 people who could be some of your viewers here, um, who switched is that if you do want to vote in the Democratic primary in August, because in August there'll be a primary for other offices, so for right, members right, of right. Congress and state reps and state senators and those types of folks who will be on the ballot in August, if you want to participate in those partisan primaries, then you should you know make sure you make that action happen sooner rather than later because you'll have that same deadline 29 days before the election right and, and you know what I really want to hammer home is that the rules have changed and now when you get a or you you ask for a mail-in ballot and you get one there's a an expiration date to that request so you have to keep requesting your vote by mail ballot correct so after the general election that happens in November, so in November of every even-numbered year, after that election, you basically would have to go back. So basically, if you think about the odd number years, January of an odd number year is a good time to think about going back and requesting all of your vote-by-mail ballots for that next upcoming election cycle. Did you see in your office a, a real confusion or scramble by people who thought that they would be able to vote by mail with this switch? We did have some calls. We had people who reached out to the office because they were used to getting their vote by mail like clockwork and now they didn't get one for yeah. this upcoming election. So we did actually get some people reach out and we had to notify them that, hey, you need to put in a new request, you have a request in. So that is something and I expect that to be much more as we get closer to August, August and November, we'll see a lot more. And you know, we do a lot of work here to educate and inform yeah. and urge people to participate and vote, and so we appreciate all those outreach efforts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we were gonna talk about the election bill that's coming up, but that's gone. It is, yeah, it's gone. <laughs> what yeah. a difference a week makes. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Joe Scott, um, thanks so much. You, go ahead. Oh, Glenda, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Great to have you, and, and you are definitely keeping in touch with us as we march toward next month and um, see what happens. For sure. All right, take care. All right. All right, South Florida's public health enemy number one at the moment, measles. The outbreak growing this weekend. Addresses to use if you have questions right now, send them in, TWISF at WPLG.com. If you love Twitter, X, we are at WPLG Local 10. And we'll get some answers real time with one of South Florida's go-to infectious disease experts next.
The numbers are rising this weekend. More cases added to the outbreak of measles, and not all of them at Weston's Manate Manatee Bay Elementary. Sudden cases of a once eradicated super contagious disease not only took the school district and health departments by surprise, but raised South Florida's most pressing public health questions since the COVID pandemic. And some of those are again mired in a partisan debate. Dr. Eileen Marty is one of South Florida's most notable infectious disease experts, having guided public health policy through Zika and then COVID, and now a professor at Florida International University. Right here, back at the table, still is kind of a safe distance apart, <laughs> are we? I don't know, not to you, I'm sure. Um, great to have you here. Welcome back. Always a pleasure. And now I feel like, you know, we spoke, what is happening? What, why is this happening now? Well, this is the most contagious virus of humans. Wow. So it really doesn't take a lot of unvaccinated people to allow for there to be a significant number of cases. Think of it this way. First of all, first of all, if you think about how contagious SARS-CoV-2 was that caused COVID, maybe two out of every four persons, you know, so each person that got it maybe infected two to four other people. Measles will infect 15 to 20 hmm. people per person amongst the unvaccinated. So let, let me just bring you down to the school level. We've been talking about this all week. A lot of people really may not have engaged totally, especially people without kids in school. But at the school level, I remember my kids could not go to school without that chart showing that they have been vaccinated and MMR, measles, mumps, rubella was right there. Why are kids in, allowed in school unvaccinated? How did that happen? And, and part two, if unvaccinated kids are in school, what's the point of mandating it? Well, first of all, um, when we had those mandates, we were closer to the time when we were uh, when it was common to get measles. Mm -hmm. We were much more aware of how dangerous and horrible this infection is. And, uh, and school districts, and Florida in particular, was phenomenal at making sure that these outbreaks didn't happen. But as we got away from that and the vaccines became so effective, um, people forgot how dangerous this virus mm -hmm. is and they started allowing changes uh, allowing more people to opt out of vaccinating their children. And to opt out, is there a reason that you have to provide? Do you have to prove anything? Or you just say, this is my personal choice? It's different in different states. It used to be that you had to have extremely good reasons to opt out. And uh, for example, when there was a big outbreak in California a, a few years ago, they had had lax allowances where people could simply opt out for ideologic reasons. But after the big measles outbreak, they switched it. And unfortunately, we've gone the other way here in Florida, hmm. where we were very strict, and now we're allowing for ideologic reasons to opt out. So there are at the moment, if my numbers are updated, 26 cases in 12 states. Um, and Florida has by far the most dangerous situation at the moment. And is that because of schools? Is it because of travel? Is it because of both? It's because when the outbreak started, we did not take the public health measure of immediately calling for full vaccination of all people who are not properly vaccinated. So I immediately think of the COVID vaccine debate when I hear you say that. It has COVID 
and the debate over public health policy there affected now this measles outbreak. Yes, absolutely, and also for a different reason. There were also thousands, more than 60,000 missed vaccinations during the time that COVID raged, mm. primarily between 20 and 2022, not now for ideologic reasons, but for not getting together, not going to the right. doctor, the, those sorts of reasons were, were foremost. Then after all this happened with the COVID-19 vaccines in terms of ideological debates instead of scientific ones, we find ourselves with more people that don't have uh, that sense of the safety of the vaccine and the risk from the actual wild virus infection. Do you see an actual fear of the vaccine as we saw a fear of the COVID vaccines? You know, measles vaccine isn't new, COVID was. Is there a comparison there? Well, what happened in the late 90s is that a, uh, a very unscrupulous physician in, uh, published in The Lancet a completely falsified uh, article that all his coworkers later you know, said, oh no, this was wrong. He actually used false data from, from cases in hospitals and claimed that the measles, um, the MMR vaccine was related to autism. However, thousands, I mean, thousands of subsequent studies delving deep into the cases he reported, everything has absolutely demonstrated that that was false. How does that, how does something like that get published in such a venerable publication in the first place? Yeah, Lancet is an absolute top uh, journal and uh, unfortunately, the peer reviewers didn't request the hospital records for those cases and believed the false data that this individual provided. And that was part of what started um, the controversy. Wow. You know, from the perspective of news, misinformation and disinformation, it can be ca catastrophic like that. So um, bef before we, I want to take some questions that are coming in, but before we go there, I, I just want to give a sense of measles, the disease. Is it survivable? Is it repairable? Well, give us a sense of the most contagious disease that you called it. What is measles? So measles is an RNA virus, okay? Um, it's actually more closely related to, say, the flu virus than it is to, um, to SARS-CoV-2. Like is it related to chicken Not pox? at all. Chicken, the, no, the no, 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 that's pox. a DNA virus. Very, very, very different, different virus, very different. But this is, this is a virus that has a few different receptors that it uses to get into different cells. One of the ones that it uses is a receptor that goes into epithelial cells, the surface cells in your, in your GI tract, right? So in your mouth and all that, and in your respiratory system. And then it, the virus is so nasty, it's so sneaky. It sneaks between cells to avoid the immune system and fuses those cells. And then the immune system is trying to fight it and some of the cells slog off and then they, and then you cough them up. This sounds like a drama series. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So that's why it's so contagious. It's because super contagious because you're 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 Got you're it. coughing out and sometimes sneezing out just massive amounts of this virus that 
can cling right on to these receptors on the epithelial cells, plus it has a receptor for immune cells. So the immune cells get infected, and that's one of the big, big problems with the measles virus because it brings down all the red and white blood cells in your system, mm. so you're anemic, and your immune system is low, so you're more susceptible to other infections. This is why it was such a killer. So I want to, uh, we, we are up against a break, but we're going to take that quick break. And when we come back, we will be answering your questions real time. Still have time to get them in. One more look at the addresses. If you have a question for Dr. Marty, we will get in as many as we can. TWISF at WPLG.com is the email. And if you're on Twitter, X, X Twitter at WPLG Local 10. And we will be right back. are back with Dr. I always want to call you Aileen and it's Aileen Marty and your questions about measles specifically um, the, the my go-to infectious disease expert so if you have questions about other diseases too I suppose that's okay but I, I want to get to a couple of these um, really quickly this person Stephen wrote in not so much a question as a comment, and it's something I really want to talk about uh, because a, a lot of people find it very awkward to talk about this. Stephen says it's not a parental rights issue, it's a public health issue, and the Surgeon General's position allowing parents to send unvaccinated children to school in the wake of measles, according to Stephen, is absurd. Um, a lot of people feel that way, and since COVID, this has the whole question of parents' choice in public health has been on the front burner. What say you? Well, if you send an unvaccinated child into a, a situation where there is measles in the atmosphere, that child has a 90 to 95% chance of getting measles. And that child then has a one in five chance of having a complication severe enough to put him in the hospital. And that child has a long-term risk of having neurologic problems from having had that. So it is enormously irresponsible to send an unvaccinated child into a zone where this virus is present, whereas a vaccinated child will only have a 2% chance of uh, contracting the virus. And if they do, it's going to be a very mild disease. So in this atmosphere where we are now, because we are in a state governed by the Surgeon General and the Health Department, and I just want to say we invited several people from several counties' health departments to come and sit and chat with us today, and, and we had no takers on that. Um, so thank you for being here. But I want to stay with that point just a little bit because if speak to the parents if it is now your choice and i'm all about parents choice for the record as a parent um, but in public health situations speak to the parents who now have those rights and what would you advise them to do i would let that parent who has not yet vaccinated their child know that if they love their child and i'm sure they do they want to put that child in the safest possible situation that that child can be in and the vaccine that we use against the measles virus is has proven over decades to be an incredibly effective and safe vaccine that works against all wild forms of the virus and is going to keep their child safe that the alternative 
is way too bad and that saying a, speci a specific number of days is very naive mm -hmm. because as as it gets passed from child to child we have we, we keep shifting the dates at which it might be safe for an unvaccinated right. child to go back into the setting okay uh, question from a parental point of view do I keep my kids home from the parental point of view the child should be fully vaccinated. That is the number one thing that you can do to keep your child safe. And that means two vaccines, not one. Um, okay, so Marsha is asking, can someone who is vaccinated still get measles? There's a 2% chance of getting the virus if you are vaccinated. However, it's going to be very mild because the current measles vaccine will effectively prevent severe disease. So thinking back to the school issue with COVID, I feel like this is mirroring what we've already been through. So let's learn from that, right? Should parents send their kids to school with masks if they want to? Would that be helpful? The mask will always reduce the risk of getting a, a, an infection that's transmitted by the respiratory route and measles is transmitted via the respiratory route. But it is much better to be vaccinated. Um, I think we have time for, for one more question. Um, in school, I really wanna stay with this because if, if parents have the job to do, let's help parents do that job. So thinking back to COVID, thinking about the school atmosphere, and really we're talking about shopping malls and movie theaters, there is measles around. We learned that COVID was transmissible, but then you had to stay six feet away and you were you know, relatively better. What I'm hearing from you is measles lingers longer in the air. So those classrooms, that movie theater, that store, that gas station, are people at risk even in the moments or hours after, I mean, how long? Well, we've known for a long, long time that measles is in aerosol form and can be transmitted at considerable distance. And again, it is very, very contagious. So if you are unvaccinated, yes, for a few hours after somebody was coughing up measles in a, in a room, that room may have enough measles virus in the air for you to breathe it in and get sick. An hour. Yeah. And how would you even know that? How, how let, me, let, me just end, let me just end with this. We are in a situation now where there is a rise in measles cases. I don't want anyone to be afraid for no reason. Set the tone. How do we keep ourselves safe from specifically measles right here, right now? We need to have an extremely high percentage of people fully vaccinated because of how contagious this is. Typically, we say 95%. Ideally, it should be 98% vaccinated um, against the measles virus or even 100%. That really reduces the risk to the entire population. There are always going to be some individuals that because of some underlying condition cannot yeah. be vaccinated. We need to protect those individuals from that. And by the way, uh, people with HIV, people taking immunosuppressives, pregnant people are at extremely high risk. Mm -hmm. Children under five are the most high risk from pneumonia from this. People over 20 are most at, at risk for the neurologic complications mm. that you get from measles, blindness, deafness. This is a very serious disease. I think you have made that point abundantly clear. <laughs>
Dr. Eileen Martin, great to have you here. Thank you so much for your deep, deep knowledge on this. Really, really appreciate that. Thank you. And we will be right back. Thank you, as always, for spending this hour with us. Have a beautiful Sunday and keep in touch.